You are listening to From the Midwest to the Middle East, the latest on U.S. tax, Israeli economy, and lots of in-between. Interviewing Israeli and international experts. Chicago, Chicago. Welcome to our podcast. I am Philip Stein, president of Philip Stein & Associates. Hi, I'm very pleased today to be interviewing uh, Manuel Sussholtz. Manuel is the managing director of Sweetwood Capital. They're based in Tel Aviv. Uh, Sweetwood Capital provides asset management and investment advisory services to qualified high net worth individuals. Its aim is to achieve consistent cash flow generation for investors through direct investments in transparent and liquid instruments. Uh, Manuel is originally from Antwerp, Belgium. From 2001 to 2009, Manuel served as an executive director at Goldman Sachs International in London. Manuel came to Israel on Aliyah in 2009. At that time, he founded Sweetwood Capital in, in 2010 and currently serves as the managing director. Uh, Manuel, with that introduction, I welcome you to our podcast. Good afternoon, Philip. Thank you for the kind words and thank you for having me here today. All the things going on in the world today, all the uncertainty, I think that uh, many people are feeling particularly uh, things that they could rely on uh, in the past, what was considered safe and secure, uh, that they could go to sleep at night does not seem to exist anymore. Uh, People seem to be not able to invest wisely on their own. And uh, I'd like to start really with with something that you had given me some in a previous discussion, uh, a topic, and I'll call that my first question. Okay. How do you find psychology these days and and combine that with all the media, more media than any of us have ever been exposed to, if it's through traditional radio, television, or, of course, the Internet, how how psychological behavior is, is hurting investment returns. On the other hand, how might we use all this psychological behavior to benefit from it? Okay. Um, I generally think that psychological behavior is a very important topic, uh, especially these days in uh, making financial decisions. Um, Psychologic behavior can sometimes destroy investment returns completely. On the other hand, some investors can benefit from that. What we often see is that large stock market trends often begin and end with periods of frenzied buying called uh, bubbles or frenzied selling, uh, which are referred to as crashes. Many observers would cite these episodes as clear examples of herding behavior okay, that is irrational and driven by emotion. So you would have this uh, feeling of greed in the bubbles and fear in the crashes. Now, individual investors, uh, the regular Joes, would very frequently join the crowd of others in a rush to get in or out of the market. Now, to illustrate this point, I'd like to make a reference to a study that was conducted on the Israeli stock market over a 10-year period from 1996 to uh, 2006. So during these years, uh, the index of Israeli stocks on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange rose by 301%, which is equivalent to an an annual increase of around 14.9%. That's pretty good performance, you would say, right? I would would definitely say so. I think anyone would uh, 
take that on easily. Exactly. So with hindsight, one could say that there is nothing easier than to benefit from rising stock prices by just laying back, buying those stocks, and hold them without selling them. Now, the reality is quite different. The study shows that Israeli retail investors did exactly the opposite. Um, by studying the inflows and outflows from all the mutual funds invested in the market during the same period, we could notice that the Israeli public always bought mutual funds during months that the stock market was increasing, and they were selling the funds in months that the market was dropping. So generally speaking, the Israeli public was getting into the market at the highest levels and getting out at the lowest level. Now, what is relevant here is that the study shows the public bought a net amount of mutual funds over those 10 years for just 2.6 billion shekels, which is nothing, which is extremely small compared to their entire holding of more than a trillion shekels. In fact, it's a ridiculously small uh, investment amount. And that amount, in fact, after 10 years, shrunk from 2.6 to 1.12 billion shekels, which shows the public, in fact, lost 60% over 10 years, while the stock market increased 301%. So something is going on here, okay? I mean, the point I'm trying to make um, is that retail investors were not dedicated to the study of the factors influencing investment valuation are typically way behind the information curve, and they become the exit strategy for many professional investors, especially when those retail guys try to trade the market as opposed to just invest with a long-term view, okay? Let me just tell you a little story about a typical stock price cycle and how many armchair investors got burned by being late to the party. Um, what you would see typically is that in the middle of a stock price advance, investors begin hearing about the invest advances in the stock, um, and they hear about it uh, in the press, internet, the media, etc. Let's take, uh, for instance, the gold as an example. So those guys, they, you know, they go to cocktail party, uh, they chatter, and they hear their neighbors talk about how much money they're making by buying gold. Next thing, they see investments uh, in gold being touted in the financial press. It makes the cover of Time magazine. They can't stand it any longer. The whole world is making money, and they're not. So eventually, they buy the gold ETF uh, when it's at $1,900 an ounce, which is pretty much the highest level it's been for a year. For a while, let's imagine the stock continues to rise, and they feel obviously very good about themselves. They actually think they're masters, masters of the universe, right? Um, that said, since they're late on the information curve, uh, the stock was usually bought near the top, and then comes the pain. So as soon as the stock starts to top uh, and move off its high, they think it's just temporary and they think it will go back. But then the stock keeps moving more, uh, downwards, I mean, uh, below their cost basis, and they start thinking, well, I cannot sell now. If you go a bit further, uh, the stock has fallen way past their costs, and they're trying to make deals with the gods to uh, get the stock back up over their cost basis. Finally, what happens is that they lost anywhere from 50 to 70% on their investment and have decided in disgust to sell the stock at a loss. And that's pretty much what happened to investors who bought Facebook shares at $38 at the IPO this year, only to see the stock fall sharply to $17 yesterday. Okay? Mm. And they decided to sell there because they simply couldn't stand the loss anymore. 
The point I'm trying to make here, Philip, about psychology is not that individuals uh, are always wrong about market timing. It's just that their emotions, uh, I mean, they let their emotions influence decisions about investing in stocks, when really all that counts is fundamentals and the long-term view. But, you know, I mean, real people don't invest that way. People want to trade. They watch CNBC. They listen to, to uh, Jim Cramer. I don't know if you've seen him uh, yell around. Of course, of course. Uh, so despite knowing better, they give into their genetic tendency, what I call the genetic tendency, to get more of the things they give that give them pleasure, like buying high, and get rid of things that cause them pain, which means selling low. I mean, people are just wired that way. Um, so what is really interesting is how little this seems to change over the years. When it comes to investing, uh, the tendency to behave badly is not going away. So I would highly recommend to investors who don't have the time to follow the market to find professional investors who actively follow the market for them and can make some decisions without the same level of emotions that uh, individuals would make. It's very interesting that you brought up that study. I, I've, I've been in Israel since the late 70s, and uh, I saw a few boom and bust of the, the cycles you know, on the retail end of, of uh, the stock market here. And, and in the right. pre-internet days, uh, they may still have them. Some of the and and when people were more connected to their physically connected to their bank branches in their neighborhoods, the banks used to put out little TV screens in the window of the bank, and if uh, with with the, the leading stock indexes or the leading stocks, and if the t if the screen had a lot of green on it, it meant it was a good day, and if it had a lot of red on it, it was a bad day. Yeah. And it seemed I, I got after a few of these cycles that when people from the neighborhood would start standing outside of the bank after hours and looking at the screen, that was probably the end of the, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, 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 of the, the boom, and it was time to get out. But uh, I think you're right. I think over the years, at least I've seen within my clientele, um, also a psychology I've seen, I would say, and again, maybe you'd like to comment this as well, that once someone has at some period – a, either uh, a strategy that worked or a particular uh, company or investment advisor that, that had a success, even if those investments are no longer working or that advisor's view is, is outdated, it's very hard for them to separate. Yeah, that's very right. Uh, that and, is very true. And, and change. So uh, that's something I also see. Now, one of the interesting th things that I'd like to turn to, um, you know, th th this has certainly been an interesting year. I, I think, the, as you call him, the Joe or the man in the street is, is not feeling very well in terms of how their portfolio has been doing this year. Although in a recent, I think your most recent newsletter to me, I was I was a bit surprised to see uh, you know, year-to-date returns on S&P 500, almost 12%. Uh, you know, high yield, uh, almost 10%. Corporate bonds, uh, almost 8%. Gold, even gold is up 5%. Uh, I think most people are, are feeling that we're really in a very bad period and you can't really make money anywhere anymore. And And I'm wondering how that outlook, you may disagree with me, fits in with the current sort of economic outlook for the U.S., Europe, Asia, and, e and even particularly Israel, where most of our, my listeners are. Okay. Um, getting back to your point of, um, you know, looking at, let's say, leak tables and at uh, 
year-to-date returns of financial assets, it is very correct to say that this year so far has been, for most assets, a very good year in terms of performance. But on the other hand, uh, the actual feeling everywhere is that the economic outlook is pretty bleak uh, everywhere you look. So there is a certain disconnect between financial performance on the one hand and economic activity on the other hand. What this means is that today, markets are mostly driven by, uh, I would call it, policy actions. Okay, Everyone is in expectations of further quantitative easing, either from the Federal Reserve or for the, uh, from the European Central Bank. And those expectations are really driving asset prices up. So we are in a period of what I call uh, financial repression. The central banks are keeping interest rates at close to absolute lows, meaning you know, pretty much 0% on your deposits, in order to push investors to take more risk and invest in riskier assets. And that's exactly what we're seeing in financial markets today, a complete disconnect between economic fundamentals and financial market performance driven by expectations of, uh, let's put it very simply, money printing. Okay? Uh, printing more debt to solve the existing debt problems. And this, at some point, will lead inevitably to very high inflation. Okay? So far, we have not seen these inflation numbers showing up anywhere definitely not in the US, but they will at some point uh, pop up. And at that point, we believe you know, one would better be armed with what we call real assets. Okay? Real assets are, for instance, assets that are not going to be devaluated by uh, well, you know, the, the devaluation in the money. So we've been investing for our clients uh, quite heavily in these real assets, uh, given the turbulence in the financial markets since the, start, since the start of the subprime crisis in 2007, together with the ongoing worries about high inflation, which will result from all the money printing by central banks around the world, investors are looking to protect their financial resources against the loss of purchasing power. Okay? So preservation of capital has taken a new significance. Um, as an investment concept, as I said, a real asset is defined as a good that is independent from variations in the value of money. The perfect example, you mentioned it as well, has been gold. It has benefited from this trend in the last few years. The gold price has almost trebled from just over $630 per ounce at the start of 07 to almost $1,700 currently. So you know, we believe this trend of investing in real assets will only intensify, and we have been actively adding them to our clients' portfolios throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, pati- we're particularly focused on equities from companies exposed to emerging markets, precious metals, gold, obviously, real, uh, real estate, and so on. Just one last point about you know, the year-to-date performance numbers. If you look at the number as such, you would think, wow, this has been a great year. The S&P is up 12%. This is amazing. Uh, why hasn't my financial advisor reached those numbers? Right. The reality is the volatility has been tremendous. So it hasn't been a straight line up from zero to 12 with you know, every month another percent, percent and a half performance, it's been you know, big shifts up and down in the equity market where at some point, if you remember the episode of last year in August uh, 2011, uh, the market basically tanked by 10% when the U.S. was downgraded and the whole uh, discussion about the fiscal cliff started to arrive. Mm-hmm. So the number is not representative of what's really going on in the market, meaning 
risk and volatility. Okay, so that's I think very important to um, underline to your listeners as well. The, the year-to-date performance are looking good, but the volatility has been tre- tremendous. I understand. Again, when we 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 who look at the headlines, if it's CNBC or Fox News or uh, picking up the Wall Street Journal, we seem to, you know, sort of see everyone sort of has a very similar outlook, at least for the the retail public call it. In other words, uh, Europe is just in trouble, even though I was just recently there on a vacation and uh, (laughs) everyone seemed to be spending money and having a good time and everyone was driving new cars in Italy. (laughs) So, you know, obviously that doesn't reflect what's going on, but that was my view, you know, what I saw. Um, slowdown in China that that you're not going to see the exports obviously because of slowdown in Europe and the U.S. Uh, the U.S. sort of in a deadlock politically uh, and with not much it seems to be tools that the central bank has. Um, and then we are this sort of island of uh, stability uh, in a certain sense, uh, where which a government that actually reacts and makes changes quite quickly. Uh, and recently there was an announcement of a decrease in unemployment. But when you look at all those factors, and we living in Israel can't be separated from them, um, what, what's your outlook for, for some of the major markets right now or the those economies? Yeah. Um, well, I definitely sympathize with your feeling that, uh, you know, August holidays in Europe, you definitely don't feel the crisis going on. I myself was traveling in Italy a few weeks ago uh, around the um, uh, the Como Lake uh, oh. area, and it definitely felt uh, particularly bullish. Europe is uh, the part of the of the world where the economic outlook is probably the bleakest. Uh, the most likely outlook in Europe is that of very sluggish growth for a long time to come because of everything that's going on. You know, you have restrictive fiscal policies, you have a private sector that is continuously deleveraging, you have a slowdown in global trade, a fall in real wages, and you have a general decline in the business uh, investment rate. So most importantly today, uh, the current issue of high financing costs in countries such as Italy and Spain, uh, and the ongoing discussions about Greece potentially exiting the Eurozone is really causing a lot of, of headaches. Um, let me ask you, Philip, do you know roughly where uh, Italy finances itself on, on a 10-year basis? Did you have a rough idea of, of, of their bond yields? No, I have not been following. Well, just to give you a, you know, a, a comparison point, uh, Italy today, uh, as far as the 10-year yield goes, you know, it's, it's basically above uh, 6.7%. About a month and a half back, uh, they were even closer to 7.2-7.3%, which is particularly high. Okay, this is is definitely not a very sustainable rate to uh, finance yourself, and uh, well, you know, pay coupons uh, at that rate. Uh, the U.S. Treasury rate, by comparison, uh, which is currently at the lowest it has ever been, is around you know 1.6-1.7 percent, depending on the day you look. So, in my opinion. The only way for Europe to get out of this debt crisis is to mutualize all its debts through so-called Eurobonds issuance, which is an idea the Germans are heavily opposed to. Okay? They don't want to bail out their poor Spanish neighbors who make a siesta between 2 and 5 p.m. while you know, those German guys work hard at the factory producing BMWs and Volkswagens. Okay? Right. So the current solutions that are being put forward 
are only what I think to be inter intermediate solutions. Okay, the European Central Bank would buy short-dated bonds from countries such as Spain and Italy to bring their financing costs down, but on the condition that these countries formally request a bailout from the European Rescue Fund, called EFSF, and agree to implement far-reaching fiscal reforms. Uh, in my opinion, the, Euro the European Monetary Union cannot continue to exist in the format that we know today, and I expect that some countries will be left behind as they fail to reduce their structural uh, budget deficits. So, you know, many investors have been underweight European assets. They simply don't want to hear about European assets. And that's, that started really last year as the Greek drama began to unfold. Um, and they think, you know, European assets will be penalized by a European breakup uh, and that will heavily weigh on European companies' valuations. Our feeling is quite similar, only we will look to opportunistically buy European companies that have been oversold by some investors, especially companies with a healthy balance sheet who have large experts to uh, exports to uh, countries outside the Eurozone. So you've got to think a little bit contrarian here and think if something has been oversold and overlooked by the general public, there may be an opportunity. Okay, that's as far as uh, Europe goes. Now, for the U.S., uh, the economy is doing better than Europe, but it's really only dragging along very slowly. So you have GDP rate growing at around 2%, which is well below its long-term average growth trends. I mean, there are some tentative signs of recovery in the housing market, uh, but the unemployment rate is still above 8%, which is far above the natural rate of unemployment for the U.S. economy, which I believe to be around 6.5%. Mm -hmm. This is a topic, of course, that uh, you know, Mitt Romney and his comrades will be uh, mentioning every day now until November, uh, unemployment rate above 8%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the U.S. Federal Reserve is the closest to having exhausted its armory, but it is also seen as the policymaker most willing to do whatever it takes to reverse conditions. So you can imagine why there is a strong preference for many investors to hold U.S. equities relative to the rest of the world. I mean, we, we do too, and we do as well. Um, where is Israel standing in all of that? Um, you said we're on an island of you know, peace and uh, quiet. I think it's, uh, you know, it's definitely an economic miracle going on here. Uh, the economy has been quite resilient despite the global downturn, but it's clearly started to suffer from being the European Union's top trading partner. So GDP growth is here likely to decelerate to around 2.5%, and that's coming from 4.7% last year. Uh, the unemployment rate is still worryingly high at around 7.1%. Mm -hmm. And remember, the historically strong shekel since 2008 is also not really helping us. Uh, so that's pushing exports down. Exports down. However, you know the shekel has started to uh, to lose some value versus the dollar recently. So that should balance out a little bit. Uh, you may have seen also the recent passage by the Knesset of um, new me measures to reduce the deficit, like including a one percentage point rise in the VAT to 17%. I'm sure you, I'm sure your clients have noticed that yes. as well. <laughs> Yes. And an increase in the income tax of one percentage point on salaries above 14,001 shekel. That's effective from January. So there is some action here going on on fiscal policy. Uh, I hope it will work. Um, I think Israel is decelerating, but definitely not uh, in the same uh, you know, deceleration mode as, as Europe or... 
All right. In the in the in the final couple of minutes, there were two other things that I did want to touch about. Uh, if you might have a be able to share with my listeners uh, what instruments might I let's call it that 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 are out there to implement some of your strategies. In other words, uh, if the client can't buy a gold bar, if the client, uh, as you say, is seeking to be a contrarian with regard to some European co- companies. Uh, what type of things could he or she be looking at in order to, uh, yeah, you know? Okay. Um, look, I mean, given given the highly volatile nature of financial markets over the last few years, we have centered our investment philosophy around a team of consistent cash generation. So we focus on on assets and products which can generate cash on a consistent basis. And that protects us, our investors against important swings in mark-to-market valuations of these underlying securities. So we're trying to invest in uh, instruments that are fully transparent, that are constructed using a diversified number of individual high-yield bond positions and high-dividend-paying mm-hmm. stocks. So you know, this is really our bread-and-butter business. We're not particularly sophisticated when it comes to that. We use high-yield bonds, so everything, let's say, north of 6% yield, we would consider, and high dividend paying stocks, uh, similar concept, you get a high dividend, if the market direction goes against you, you still have some kind of caution. Um, high yield in particular in the U.S. is interesting uh, because corporates in the U.S. are still priced for substantial amount of stress. So you have these high implied default rates in, uh, in U.S. Uh, corporates and also in European, um, and we do think, on the other hand, that companies in high yield have diversified away from bank funding and they have little or no debt maturing in 2012. So we think they will do well. We think they will pay the coupons, they will reimburse the principals, and we, took the, and we think that prices will move up in that asset class. Uh, now, you've got to diversify the portfolio well. Uh, you've got to you know, generally compose a portfolio of, I think, minimum 20 different bonds and diversify it over 10 different sectors. Uh, and try to achieve something around six, six and a half percent today as a yield to maturity. I think that's pretty honest. So that's the bond side. As far as equity goes, we have a preference for high dividend paying stocks, where we continue to uh, hold overweight positions in uh, U.S. mortgage REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts. I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with the um, REIT market. Um, these products basically pay dividends on an annual basis of between 13 and 17%. Okay, so if you do some stock picking uh, diligently, you can find some stocks like AGNC, ARR, CIS, which are top picks in the sector, who pay you know, very good dividend yields of around 15%. We think the U.S. REIT sector will continue to benefit from a low rate environment from low prepayment risk on mortgages and eventually from recovering the U.S. housing mm-hmm. market. Um, but no, you know, now more than ever, with global rates being so low and some companies' valuation looking particularly expensive, uh, we think that good name-picking is really essential. Okay, that, that's very, very wise and good advice. Let's move again away from uh, the global outlook and, and the United States and Europe and come back here to Israel. Uh, many of my clients, I would basically summarize that their experience with Israeli banks, uh, Israeli financial institutions are not user-friendly. Um, 
And you having been here quite a few years and you being able to compare to the European and, and U.S. model, what might advice you might give to my clients uh, to avoid some potential traps and, and achieve the most out of the client-banker relationship? Um, for most people, dealing with banks in Israel has been a pretty bad experience, uh, sometimes leading to some degree of aggravation, I would say. I don't know if that has been the case for you personally, but maybe for your clients. Mm -hmm. so. It need not be that way. Okay? As I mentioned earlier, uh, I worked for eight years at the U.S. investment bank, and that has taught me a thing or two about how banks operate, how they make money, and how they can sometimes look to abuse clients that are unaware of their practices. Now, Israeli banks are not different than their global counterparts, but their fee structure seems to be particularly complicated and I would say open for negotiation. Well, that's maybe like anything else here in Israel, but it's particularly the case for Israeli banks. Now, let me focus on the private wealth management side of these banks, which is where some of our clients and your clients hold their assets in custody. Um, depending on the bank which you step into, you will usually receive standard rates that can even vary from one branch to another within the same bank. They may vary from one representative to another. Okay. In our business, we tend to focus particularly on three types of fees. First one is transaction fees for buying and selling foreign securities, okay, so buying or selling U.S. stocks, for instance. Second one is transaction fees for buying and selling foreign currencies, say uh, selling dollars for buying shekels. And the third one is custody fees for holding uh, securities at the bank. Depending on the size of your account and based on the expected frequency of your trading, the bank will offer you fees that vary from 0.1% on all these items mentioned earlier for the most active investors to perhaps even 0.7-0.8% for the smaller investor. So there's a huge, you know, there's a huge difference uh, depending on your activity, your volume, and the bank that you, uh, that you ask. Our recommendation is to shop around and find the bank that charges the lowest fee structure. As a professional investor, we assist our clients with this as we have pre-agreed transaction costs with all the Israeli banks, uh, thanks to our size and volume in the markets. Be aware that in today's markets, with interest rates uh, being so low, cost control is very important and can be a significant driver of performance for your portfolio. Um, now, I want to talk about disclosure as well. Uh, make sure you receive full disclosure from the bank on the fees you're expected to pay when trading securities. Um, in fact, make sure you also check your bank statements to make sure the bank actually charge what they promised they would and not more. So as a matter of fact, our company employs a person full-time who is dedicated to, to, uh, to checking our bankers' fees on a full-time basis. Um, I would generally also recommend to stay away from investments that are not transparent and illiquid, such as structured products. Uh, banks have a tendency to push these products to their customers as this is where they can make the most margin and the customer usually has no way of checking how much the bank charges them on these transactions. I mean, you can easily assume that the bank typically charges between 1% and 3% upfront on some of these products, okay? Mm -hmm. So you buy something at 100, effectively you paid 103. Uh, you know, a structured product is effectively a package of derivative instruments, so any astute investor can easily replicate their exposure without having to buy this package. In a, in a much more cost-efficient way and with more transparency and liquidity. Um, another important point about Israeli banks is that they're not allowed to provide investment management services to account holders. 
the Israeli law clearly separates clearly separates the banking activity from the portfolio management activity. So your bank advisor, the your ads, will therefore therefore only be able to advise you on potential investments that may suit your investment needs, but he won't be able to manage your investments based on a certain mandate, for instance. So in order to do that, you would need to give a portfolio management contract to an external asset management firm uh, like ourselves, for instance. In, in my experience, banks tend to offer very little investment advice, and they prefer to leave client funds on a deposit which basically means cheap funding for the bank mm-hmm. to lend to other borrowers at higher rates. So the alternative would be to manage the funds yourselves or to use an external asset, uh, asset manager. So that's, that's uh, as far as the Israeli bank goes. All right, very good. So as we come to the end, uh, I'd like my listeners to hear a little more about you and, you and your firm. I did give a little introduction at the beginning, but uh, if they'd want more information or, or to be able to contact you. Okay, um, just about my personal background. In my case, it was more a journey from Northern Europe to the Middle East, as <laughs> okay. opposed to the Midwest to the Middle East. I grew up uh, in a town called Antwerp, which is in Belgium. Uh, some of you may know Antwerp as the World Diamond Trading Center, where more than 50% of the uh, world consumption of rough, uh, polished, and industrial diamonds is passing through. By the way, uh, Antwerp has a very strong Jewish community of around 15,000 people. They've always maintained a strong and, and active presence in the local diamond trade. And for those of you uh, who had the opportunity to travel there, you may have noticed how heimish, you know, how cozy some of the parts of the city center were, as you would frequently see, uh, freq- frequently see ultra-Orthodox people in Strymos and Bekisha strolling down the streets around the city diamond center, a bit like Mea Sharim in Jerusalem sometimes. So, despite my family's background in the diamond trade and, and my uh, strong interest for precious stones, I decided I had to get into another very typical Jewish occupation, which is finance. Okay? So, in 1998, I started my finance, my finance degree uh, studies at the uh, Free University of Brussels, Belgium, and I remember that around those days, we were all very fascinated by this movie called Wall Street yeah. uh, with Michael Douglas where his uh, Gordon Gecko character was doing these huge deals, and it all seems very exciting on, on TV at least. Well, you know, I don't know if you saw the movie, Philip, but these deals turned out to be inside the trading deals, and, Go- and Gecko went to prison in the movie. But that's, that's not the point. The point was, uh, you know, I wanted to get into investment banking and be part of the buzz. So one thing led to another, and uh, in 2001, I started working at, as an analyst at Goldman Sachs in London on their fixed income desk. So I ended up staying at Goldman for about eight years. Uh, as, an ex- as an executive director, I was running a team advising European institutional clients on their investments in fixed income, commodity, and currency products. And that involved government bonds, mortgages, high yield bonds, derivatives, and so on. During those years, Goldman was recognized as one of the most prestigious investment banks on the street, and they were always in the top of all the league tables across products and markets. Uh, needless to say, they were always attracting some kind of media attention for, you know, alleged improper practices in trading and how they were treating their, their customers. Now, the time I spent at Goldman Sachs in London was a great experience, uh, not only in terms of learning to invest successfully in financial markets, but also in developing a deep understanding of the relationships between banks and their clients. Uh, and I try to use that knowledge today to best assist my clients when negotiating deals with their bankers. Uh, 
anyway, when the financial crisis started uh, in late 2007, I realized that I had to look elsewhere for opportunities. And it was also the time that I realized that uh, time was right for me to realize my dream and making Aliyah to Israel and start something new there as an entrepreneur. So I arrived there in July 2008, just a few months before the Lehman Brothers crash. Uh, you know, I spent three months on the beach <laughs> in Tel Aviv, recovering from my, let's right. say, slavery days at Goldman Sachs. And I decided to go into the asset management business because I saw a real opportunity to advise uh, private, private investors independently on how to best uh, protect their savings in those turbulent times right after the Lehman crash. And that's how I incorporated uh, Sweetwood Capital in the uh, Migdal HaMuseon in Tel Aviv, uh, right across the Beit Mishpat. And we've been successfully uh, managing funds for uh, wealthy individuals then. So that's, uh, that's about my personal background and the uh, company I set up. Um, so um, if any of you want to get in touch. Well, Goldman Sachs loss is our gain here in Israel. Yeah. And uh, again, how, you, you have a website, of yeah, course. Absolutely. And uh, there's all my contact details on our website. Uh, we have a newsletter that we can subscribe to. Sweetwood-capital.com. And, and you sit if someone wants to uh, visit you and also have a little time at the museum. They can kill two birds with one stone, as they say. Absolutely. So we're right in front of the uh, Tel Aviv Arts Museum. And there's also some uh, exciting expositions here going on uh, at the uh, Museum Tower in the Litvak Gallery. So uh, everyone is welcome to... Uh, to visit. Thank you for your time, and I thank you for this very interesting uh, discussion. And I and I I look forward to maybe as we get through year end and after post elections and uh, get some updated views from you. Thank you very much, Philip, for having me. Uh, let's speak towards the end of the year. Uh, we'll watch out for the elections. I know who you will be voting for, and uh, we'll, uh, Please, we'll talk uh, in, uh, in December. Many, many, year, many years ago, my grandfather said two things, never talk politics or religion business. So uh, <laughs> I'm not going to reveal okay. my choice, but uh, take, take care and thanks for the thanks Thank for you the very time. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacestein.com or look for Philip Stein Associates on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye.